Well, church family, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 37. This is a very familiar passage. And uh, in the midst of Lent, we are asking the question, how the Lord sends us out. Last week, we examined in Matthew's gospel how the Lord sends us to sinners as a sinner. This morning, we're looking at how the Lord is sending us out in love to our neighbors. Covenant children, as your parents give you permission, um, would you consider drawing a picture of what happens when you take a large rock and you throw it into a pond? Do you know what happens when you throw a rock into a pond? Not only is there a splash, but there's something that happens. There's a little ring, a ripple, and that ripple doesn't just stay in one spot. It reverberates throughout the water, sometimes to the very end of the pond. Would you draw that ripple? And the reason why I mention that ripple is because the Lord Jesus, he's gonna give us a picture of what it means to love our neighbors. And sometimes our neighbors are very close to us. They're like that center ripple. But sometimes he calls us to look at our neighbors beyond our central circles into the very ends of the pond, which we might say are the very ends of the earth, to love our neighbors. Friends and brothers and sisters, there have been many things that have happened in our weeks this past week. Many formative questions in our hearts and lives, but this morning, God's word is to shape us. It's life for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Let us turn our hearts to it right now, Luke chapter 10, and let's hear and grow through his word today. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, this is Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this is your word and we are your people the sheep of your pasture. We ask that you would help us to understand not just what it means, but how we might live it in your world, that we would love not just our nearby neighbors, but through a ripple effect, that you reverberate your love throughout our families and our work, our friendships, ultimately our city and the world around us. Lord, you are the one who changes lives, who change our lives, So would you lead us that we'd be ready and willing to follow you, to have mercy and compassion on our neighbors. Bless our time, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who has God placed in your life as a neighbor? I want to tell you a little bit about one of my neighbors, one of my next door neighbors, a godly neighbor. We uh, live next to them and they've got a fantastic, beautiful lawn. And uh, every fall, as you know, leaves just cover our yard and their yard. And we have many trees that are on our side of our property, but they, uh, leaves descend all over both of our yards. And every fall I get out looking at the yard I need to leaf blow and clean up. And before I have a chance to go out and clean the yard, my neighbors are there diligently cleaning off their yard, the leaves that have fallen, and then they usually clean up a good portion of our leaves. And then I I go out to finish the rest and I get out my leaf blower and I blow leaves and they blow, as you know, everywhere and the wind's blowing and they scatter across their beautiful yard and before I have a chance to clean up their yard, they come back and they've covered over my mistakes, cleaned up their yard. And then, as you know, the second level of leaves drops a month later, and the same thing happens. I know I need to clean up my yard, and here they come, and they clean it up. Lovingly, patiently, enduringly, covering over my mistakes, my lack of involvement in lawn care, even at cost to themselves, their time and their energy. They are good neighbors. He's actually a pastor. One of the reasons why I'm glad we have this passage because he knows he's supposed to be a good neighbor to me. (laughs) But I need to be a good neighbor to him. You see, in the passage that we're looking at, we're not just looking at who is my neighbor, but we're actually being called by Jesus to examine the question, to whom am I to be a good neighbor? Who has God placed in my life to whom I need to take care of the lawn, (laughs) how I need to be better at lawn care so that I can be a good neighbor to the ones whom he has put before me. Who has God placed in your life? Well, the Lord has someone in front of him this morning in our passage He has a neighbor in front of him and we're gonna look and see how the Lord interacts with this man who has come to ask a strong question. Look with me at verse 25, the opening passage, opening verse in our passage. 
This is the beginning of what Luke wants us to know. He says, and behold, a lawyer. Now, a lawyer was a Bible teacher, essentially. Uh, He was somebody who might have been a scribe, but he was an expert of the law. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's possible that uh, this man had the best of intentions. He may have really wanted to know this question and the answer to it, uh, but Luke discerns that he's asking to tempt Jesus, to test him. That's what that word also can mean, is to tempt or, or to trap, perhaps. He's wanting to find out if Jesus has the right answer to his question. And he asks it in such a way that, that in the... In the Ancient days in this time period, it was a common question, in a sense, for traveling rabbis to be asked. It was kind of a credentials question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do you know the answer? It seems that beyond this question, I believe what he's really getting at is how well do you know the scriptures? How well do you know the law? Are you authorized to be able to teach as you're doing? It's a test. How do you respond to tests? How do you respond when people come up to you and and test? Some of you might even have flashbacks to what it was like in school and you hated tests. But I know in my life when I'm tested, usually I get testy back. I wanna defend myself or I wanna show off my knowledge. I want to be seen in a justifying way that I am where I am because of what I know and who I am. I get anxious I get overwhelmed perhaps even. I want us to take a look at how Jesus responds because where I get testy, I get uh, overwhelmed perhaps by a question that's designed to trap me. Jesus doesn't respond in that way. He actually engages in a way that loves this neighbor that's in front of him. He doesn't respond in anxiety but he actually responds with a very helpful question, a question that gives this lawyer an opportunity to actually show off his knowledge, uh, to, to present it, what he knows. He says in verse 26, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He invites the man to share what he knows. And it shouldn't surprise us, as we know this is a lawyer, a scribe, he knows exactly the right answer, and he communicates it clearly right back. He says in verse 27, the the two great laws, you know, from Deuteronomy 6 and and Leviticus 19, which Ken read uh, earlier in the service, he puts them together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This man knows the law. He knows the right answer. and, And Jesus actually affirms him in this. He encourages him back. He loves the man back. That's right. Well done. Go and live. (laughs) Go and live in the two great commandments that God has given. And we're told that the motivation of this man shifts. He's no longer testing Jesus, but now he seeks to justify. He seeks to make himself look right before the crowd, before Jesus, before whomever. And he asks another question. This passage is full of questions. But he asks the question that we might tend to ask, who is my neighbor? 
That might be a very sincere question, but as Luke also discerns that he's trying to, to justify himself, he's trying to make himself look right, he's actually asking a question behind that question that's along the lines of, how much do I need to do in order to live? Who is my neighbor? What are the, the minimum standards by which I can get by and still live rightly? Isn't that the question often of our own hearts? What's the minimum? How do I just simply get by? And Jesus, as he asked an original question to the man's question, he now asks another question. But before he gets to that question, he responds with a story, a very well-known story. It's kind of like Jesus in this story is inviting the man to think differently about life. Instead of just giving him an answer, instead of either justifying him or, or uh, helping him to, to, to be confronted in his justification, uh, Jesus confronts him by, by actually telling a story, by inviting him to think differently, engages him in, in a very loving way. He doesn't try and dismiss the man's question, but he does realize it's kind of a bad question because it's asking the minimum. It's asking how much can he get by with. Uh, I had a professor, his name was Jerem Bars, and he, he talked a lot about evangelism and missions. And one of the things that he would often say about this passage is, is that it's, it's like Jesus is taking him to kindergarten, but not in a humiliating way. He's taking him back to the fundamentals of what the law really means. He's helping to expose in his mind and eye what the real heart issue behind this man really is. He's loving him. He's actually treating him like a good neighbor. Or he's being the good neighbor. He's treating him like a neighbor. He's living as an example of love, even in asking the question and telling a story. He's seeking to be the good neighbor to this man who's just tested him and sought to justify himself. And so Jesus tells us tells the story, and we, we are very familiar with the story. Our culture is very familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. We've got everything that ranges from Good Samaritan insurance to hospitals and thrift stores, even Good Samaritan laws. But we have to slow down and consider what Jesus and how he's communicating, the details of what he's saying here, so we can understand how we too are called to live as a good neighbor we consider this good Samaritan. So let's look at it. Uh, verse 30, Jesus begins, if you've got the text in front of you. A man's traveling down away from Jerusalem. He's going to Jericho in ancient times. Uh, this would have been a sizable journey, about eight hours. Uh, it would have meant that it, in that time and day and age, it was potentially dangerous. And that's what happens. He's beaten and he's stripped. He's robbed. He's left for dead. In fact, that word half dead, it means to be dying. He's clearly and visibly dying. If he does not receive aid, he's dead. And in the midst of this story, we see a number of, of people who pass by. Uh, the first one being a, a priest. A priest would have been considered a hero to an Israelite. They were spiritual leaders 
They knew the law. They knew what the law demanded. They knew that, that because they were trained in the law that, that something should be done for this man. He should be loved and cared for. But there's something that's surprising, unexpected that takes place in Jesus' story. He doesn't love the man. He actually travels the other side. He avoids the man. And then in verse 32, it's the same, same story, but with a Levite. Again, another hero to the Israelites. These were the protectors, the guardians of the temple. Uh, they were, as we talked about last week, uh, men who were to be tr- entrusted with a great deal of responsibilities, physically and spiritually. Certainly this man would have known the law. This man too passes on the other side. Now there's all sorts of various different motivations that people try and and explain about this. They try and explain, well, maybe it's because he was unclean, maybe he was dead and they were were, uh, not wanting to become unclean. But really the motivations in this story don't really matter as much as what the actions matter. Jesus isn't giving us an insight into the hearts of these men except by way of their actions, which is to avoid, to cross over, to not show love to the man who was in need, the man who was clearly dying. And then in verse 33, an unexpected event takes place. Where the heroes of the ancient Israelites, the priest and the Levite, would have, should have engaged this man, they pass over. But here in verse 33, a Samaritan passes by. He sees the man who's actively dying. He perhaps hears the moaning of this man. And we're told by Jesus that he has compassion. Now why does Jesus mention a Samaritan? I mean, obviously we know in this context they were oppressed by Romans. Romans were the big enemy. They were the pagans who had enslaved the Israelites. But Jesus talks about the good Samaritan who comes. Now, that's because the Samaritans were seen through even an even worse lens than the Romans were by the Jews. The Samaritans were hundreds of years ago, they were in constant battle and disagreement with the Jews. So for hundreds of years, they didn't get along. They fought and argued. They were Jews that intermarried with pagan cultures, uh, pagan religions. They weren't faithful to what the law said. And so the Jews knew that they were spiritually more mature. Uh, They were uh, greater than the Samaritans were. And and, and that conflict between the two of them led to a a great deal of increasing conflict as the hundreds of years went by. Uh, Jews would refuse any association with the Samaritan. They wouldn't do trade, even if they needed to. Uh, They would not only bar them from synagogues, you know, don't come into our place of worship, but in the services, they would actively curse them. So much so that they would pray that the Samaritans would never inherit eternal life. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 9, uh, verses 51 through 56. To show the depth of this, let's flip back a chapter. Jesus has sent out his disciples to prepare the way for his arrival. And uh, some of them reach a Samaritan town. 
These are Jesus' disciples. And, and that Samaritan town, as you can imagine because of the conflict, has already told the, the, the disciples not to come. They've, they refuse to receive Jesus. If you're looking at the text there, you'll see the response of, of two of those disciples, two of the closer disciples, both uh, James and John. What do they want to do? They want to call down fire from heaven to consume this town for not receiving them. That's how the own disciples, Jesus' own disciples, saw Samaritans. And Jesus rebukes them in that encounter. But the thought of a Samaritan approaching a man who's lying, dying, and caring for him would have been shocking. And, and see how Jesus describes the care, the love, the mercy of this Samaritan. Wounds are bound, oil and wine, expenses poured out. This is ancient first aid. He places him on his animal and he has to walk to the next inn. He places him in an in a inn to recover. He covers the debts of the man who has nothing. He's been robbed. He even plays, pays two denarii, which would have covered somewhere between three to six weeks of recovery time. And not only does he cover that current debt, but he says, I'll cover any future debt this man incurs. The Samaritan is the one who has shown love to a neighbor. Jesus, when he finally arrives at his question to this attorney, the fundamental question that was asked, you know, instead of what we read that he asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus changes the question. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, to whom am I to be a neighbor? <laughs> Who was the neighbor to this hurting man, this man who was beaten, and bruised, left for dead? The lawyer understands the question, but notice he can't even seem to say the word Samaritan. It's the one who showed mercy. The word mercy, it's the word that we saw last uh, Sunday in Matthew's gospel, the word that often gets used in the Greek to refer to hesed, the steadfast love of another. The lawyer recognizes what mercy is, what love for a neighbor looks like. And we have to ask the essential question of who am I called to be an, a good neighbor towards? And, I, and I'd love to tell you that, that I know exactly who that is in your heart. <laughs> but I don't know if I can. 
I know that we live in a world where we are broken and fractured in so many different ways. And I think there's a temptation and a need to be able to say things like, you know, if we are bent in a Republican direction, we need to love Democrats. And if we're bent in a Democrat way, we're we're to love Republicans. We're to look at the people on the opposite side. But I think even in that, if some of us saw a man or a woman in need, many of us would go straight to that person, regardless of, of their political affiliation or even regards to their ethnic affiliation, their racial. I think many of us would seek to be a good neighbor. But I think there are two questions about discerning that neighbor in our heart that are very important. And the first question is, uh, who do I not want to be my neighbor? (laughs) Maybe it's not a group of people, but maybe it's an individual Uh, Maybe it's a a person who I avoid in the store because I don't want to talk to them. Maybe it's someone who has injured me from years ago. Maybe it's a family member that I never want to talk to again. Who is the one who we would hope and pray would never move next door to us? That is who Jesus is calling us to consider as a neighbor. I think the second question for us also is a little bit more palatable. The second question is, who has God placed in front of us today? Who are you going to sit down across the table from today? Many of us will encounter many, many people, whether it's at a store, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's at work, whether it's at a dining room table and there's tension in your marriage, or whether it's a a child who has gone a wayward direction, or perhaps it's even someone who is suffering because of a lifestyle they have chosen. Who has God placed in your midst for you to love today? You see, the picture that God gives us in this parable is that whoever we encounter is our neighbor. And we are to be mindful of who they are and we are to love. And how do we love? How are we called to love? Well, look at the Samaritan. We see that he he does at great cost. He considers the need. He sees the person and pursues that need that that person has. It's a costly love for his neighbor. We have to look in our midst for the needs of those who are around us, who are hurting, who are struggling. And we have to ask, what resources has God given me to meet the need of those who are hurting around me? How do we do that? How do we do that day after day? Because many of you, we even have a mercy committee. Many of us are pouring out our lives for others. How do we continue to look at our neighbors and those who God has put in our place, whether they're checkout clerks or whether there's somebody who just rear-ended me? How do we endure the love that God has called us to love? You look to Jesus. You look to the one who was a good neighbor 
to us. Because at the heart of this, if we were to put ourselves in this story in some way, uh, we're not the Samaritan that's coming to rescue the dying man. In the story that God is telling, we are the dead man. (laughs) We're the one who has died that Jesus has been a good neighbor to, who sees us in our needs. He knows the struggles of our hearts and lives. He knows your struggle right now. And he has pursued you with a love that was very costly. So costly that he gave up his life, his righteousness for you. He does this in love. He does this so that you would be transformed by his spirit. So that you would rely on him. So that you would look to others to show mercy, to show love. That's how we look and engage in the ripple effect. (laughs) That's how we examine our lives and see those who are closest to us, those who might be easy to love, and we look beyond to the very edges of the pond and we pursue them to love them as Christ loved us. Only in understanding how much Jesus has loved you Can we go and can we do likewise? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the one who was sent on our behalf to have compassion and mercy in our great needs. Lord, you did not hold anything back in your love. You gave us what we could not receive on our own or do on our own but a life that has come from your son. Would you give us clarity, eyes that are open, eyes that are seeking the opportunities to live out love at great cost in a needy world to those you've put before us, that we would seek to be a good neighbor, that we would be seek to be defined by your mercy and that we would see that mercy extend to the very far reaches of your world. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.